This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Have these Republicans been listening to themselves over the past three years? Have they been listening to the tone that they have used against the president and having this debate? I got to tell you something, I was watching that speech and I was the opposite. You know, I was thinking, boy, the president's being so gentle and modest. I mean, you know what I would have said? I would have said the Republican plan stinks and I will chew my right arm off before I sign any part of it. This is The Middle with Anthony Weiner. Unplugged. Welcome to episode six of The Middle Unplugged, a break in the middle of the week when we reclaim the microphone from the far left and the far right and try to carve out some time for a less shrill, less extreme, and generally less angry conversation. So great to have you along. We have now entered, it appears, the post-election kind of return to some of the normal crazy. Unlike the election crazy of the last year or so, things are starting to stabilize a little bit. We are Seeing some legitimately good news. Oil prices officially are now down for the year. They hit their lowest price since December 27, 2021, down about 3.2%. I'm not a conspiracy guy. You know that. But here it is. Oil prices coming down immediately after the midterm elections. You wonder why they were up the way they were. But like I said, these are free market things that go on. They go up. They go down. I'm sure we'll have... Joe Biden taking credit for it since he was taking so much blame early on. And they're still counting some ballots, still formalizing it. But basically, the election is now over all over the country except for in Georgia. That one wraps up next week. The polls still show that it's close in an interesting twist. Yesterday in the New York Times, they said that officials from the Walker campaign and the Trump administration, the Trump organization both agree wouldn't be a great idea to bring in Donald Trump into Georgia. I think finally the Republicans are starting to get the message that Donald Trump is not exactly an appealing candidate. They are certifying their final results in Arizona. They had a very close gubernatorial race. And of course, one of the big messages that came away from the midterm elections was how election denial is suddenly out of vogue for Republicans. They're not talking about it as much, but still, just for the heck of it, I tuned in to watch the live stream. If you want to get an idea what my life is like, the live stream of the Maricopa County Supervisors meeting to certify the election. And to get a little bit of a taste of what is still out there in the world, you know, this hot issue of denying the election results. Obviously, Arizona was one of the ground zeros of that. And listening to some of the witnesses, you know, they opened it up to citizens to come testify. And one of them called the supervisors vote traffickers. And another one, I had actually go look this up. Another asked if supervisor Clint Hickman, he asked him about his chicken farm. (laughs) I didn't understand at all what the person was talking about. I had to go Google it to find that one of the wild conspiracy theories of 2020 was that Hickman fed his chicken ballots and then lit them on fire. I kid you not. This was one of the conspiracy theories that was out there about 
what happened to steal the election in Arizona. The election was not stolen in Arizona in 2020. It wasn't stolen this time. And what is interesting about this to me is recently I talked on episode five about how the Republicans returning to Hunter Biden investigations is one of their first things out of the box. The Republicans had put out a full list of things they're investigating. They want to impeach the head immigration official in the country. They want to have an investigation of why the FBI, since they used to be so pro-law enforcement, now apparently the Republicans want to investigate the FBI. One thing that's not on their list of investigations, and I looked, they're not investigating the stolen election. I'm surprised they're not. They're all into this just, I mean, just weeks ago. They're not investigating that at all. I think they're finally realizing it's time to stop talking about that subject and not a moment can sue soon for most Americans. But there are still people out there. There was at least this one guy in Maricopa County who was asking Supervisor Clint Hickman, what about his chicken farm, where apparently the allegation is Hickman was feeding his chickens ballots <laughs> and then lighting him on fire. What I don't understand is if you are going to get rid of ballots, is that the most efficient way you can come up with? Feeding them to a chicken and then lighting the chicken on fire? First of all, you can just light them on fire. They're paper, aren't they? And why feed them to the chickens and then light the chickens on fire? It seems like an extra step that's totally unnecessary. And it involves chickens. But I guess because Supervisor Clint Hickman had a chicken farm, this fit pretty well together. And we're also, now that the election is over, we are now, many of us who are these political insider nerd types who think that the world begins and ends on Twitter, and my world almost did end on Twitter. For those of you who know the Anthony Weiner story, you know Twitter and I don't get along so well. But I am fascinated... I did a whole episode of The Middle of the radio show I do at 2 o'clock on Saturdays about Elon Musk back in the months ago when he was first talking about taking over. And you can go back and listen. I did a pretty good job predicting exactly how this was all going to go down. I said that he was going to have second thoughts about this. He did. And that if he took it over, it was going to be a mess because this whole notion of Twitter becoming this free speech nirvana. There is no such thing as free speech nirvana. Speech is complicated with rights of speech come responsibilities, etc. But I couldn't help notice, you know, everything, just about everything that Elon Musk is doing right now is to make the place, meaning Twitter, less attractive for people. And by the way, if you're one of the people that doesn't care about Twitter and doesn't understand what all this do about it, join the club. When I did an episode about this on the radio, crickets in terms of people who are calling in and seem to care that much, but it is a fascinating place because it is where a lot of politicians are and it is where a lot of journalists are. And so Elon Musk has been doing everything possible to make it clear who he is. He's an alt-right believer kind of guy. He's allowed all kinds of hate speech back on the platform, let Donald Trump back on the platform, but more importantly has left let dozens if not hundreds of new followers or new tweeters back on who are espousing hate. And obviously, when you're a company that's based on advertising, which is what Twitter is, advertisers are like, we don't want any part of this. We don't want our brand surrounded by hate speech. And one of them has been Apple. And Elon Musk, just as I was on the way over here, tweeted, Apple has mostly stopped advertising on Twitter. Do they hate free speech in America? And one of the things I like about this is he's now Elon Musk, this billionaire guy, taking on one of the bigger companies in the world, Apple. 
And I don't think, you know, just, Elon, let me talk to you over here for a second. If you can step over to microphone one with me just to talk about this for a second. I don't understand what it is that you believe about free speech that requires someone to advertise on your platform. It is a form of police speech not saying things, not going places, not being associated with certain people. That is part of free speech. And I want to make clear, because a lot of the traffic going back and forth supporting Elon Musk is about the First Amendment and the freedom. No, the First Amendment has nothing to do with some bozo on Twitter. It says government can't stop you from saying things and can't, you know, there are certain time, space, and manner restrictions that they're allowed to use, but very limited. It's government. To a company advertising on a platform or not, it's not free speech. And by the way, is there any more free speech to be on Twitter than it is to not be on Twitter? They're both free speech things you can do. And increasingly, companies are going to make the determination they don't want to be associated with Elon Musk, his racism and his hat tips to the far right his support of anti-Semitic tropes and everything else, they're going to realize that they don't want to be associated with it and the company is going to go the way that companies go when they become cesspools. This is always going to be very hard. If you're running a social media platform, I don't admire the position you're in. It's very hard. You know, we talked last week about the decision they made around whether to spread what looked like disinformation about you know, Hunter Biden's laptop. These are tough calls that you have to make. When is something speech? When is it not? When is it art? When is it obscenity? These are hard questions. But if you're in the business of selling advertisers the idea that this is a safe place to be, one thing not to do is to say, okay, we're going to let all kinds of hate speech on. But now, you know, Elon Musk said that he is going to shame advertisers into being on his platform. That's not the way this works. And the same way that, you know, when, you know, Kanye West, I have no obligation to buy, to support his products or to buy his records and advertisers who walk away from him do so to express that they don't want to be associated with him. That's part of the, you want to be an anti-Semitic jerk? Fine. You want to have a platform that welcomes them and makes them the norm? Fine. You just can't expect people to show up. You can't expect advertisers to show up. That's... That's for darn sure. So that's, you know, how this is going to go. It seems now it's getting more and more obvious how it's going to go, that we now know Elon Musk, who he is, and what he himself tweets, what he himself supports, the people he himself says are welcome back to his company, meaning Twitter. We know that he's fired people left and right, including almost everyone who does any kind of content moderation. We know that he wants to make it even more complicated on that platform by letting anyone claim anyone go and buy a vaunted blue check mark, which I still don't have, by the way. Twitter says I'm not notable enough. What the heck, dude? <laughs> I'm a media person and I'm pretty darn notable for reasons good and somewhat bad. So that's going on. But very quietly sneaking up on us is an issue that is much more serious and lasting in nature. December 7th, as you know, the day that will classically live in infamy may soon be another, be infamous for another reason. And that is the Supreme Court of the United States has said they are going to hear the case Moore versus Harper. And while there was enormous amount of heat and energy around last year's Supreme Court, they're taking away the rights from half the population over their own body for the first time, a constitutional right taken away by the court for the first time. I mean, and really in history, we've added rights as we've gone along, as we become more enlightened and progressive as a country. But in this case, Moore versus Harper, they are testing a very, very basic thing about 
the Constitution and about the way we interpret the constitutionality of laws. Now, it goes without saying almost that the way the process works is that legislatures pass laws and courts get to decide whether they're constitutional, whether they're constitutional under state constitution, whether they're constitutional under the federal constitution. This notion of judicial review is basically how we all understand that our system works. But this case that's winding has now winded its way all the way to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court has said they want to take it, and they don't take cases unless they're interested in them. So this is not a fringe thing anymore. Now it's going to be before the highest court in the land. It looks at this notion that in Article One, Section 4 of the Constitution, it says the quote, times, places, and manner of holding elections shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof, basically saying elections are state jurisdictions or under state control and state law. And so when people have said over the last couple of years, why does it take Arizona so long to count? Why does it take Pennsylvania so long to count? Why are things so slow in Alaska where they have ranked choice voting? Why can't everyone be as fast as, say, Florida? How come it took so long for them to finally call some of the races in New York? It's because each state under the Constitution has its rights to decide how elections are going to be run. And that's right there in the Constitution, Article 1, Section 4. But the thing that is at controversy here, although this is the first time it's been raised really in hundreds of years, is this notion shall be prescribed in each state by the state legislature thereof. Some people are arguing that it's just the legislature thereof, meaning it never gets reviewed by any court. This is a novel, almost bizarre interpretation of the Constitution because, yes, legislatures get to pass laws, but ultimately courts get to decide whether they're being discriminatory, whether they're violating the law. Now, you may be surprised to learn that nowhere in the Constitution does it say that an act of Congress, for example, gets reviewed for constitutionality. The idea that the court, the Supreme Court, gets to come in and say that the Congress did something that was unconstitutional, that's nowhere in the, the text of the law. That's something that came into being in Marbury v. Madison, I think it was 1803, this notion of judicial review. And at the time, it wasn't really contested. The court just said, obviously, we have to take this on. It's implicit in the Constitution if it's not written there. But now in this court, which is throwing everything out the window for whatever whim they might have, they're starting to question whether or not they're raising, they're allowing this question to come up, whether or not the courts have the opportunity to stop a legislature from doing something. Now, why is this relevant and why is this particularly frightening? Well, let's take a scenario where both the legislative branch is controlled entirely by one party. Let's say it's the Republican Party. And let's say the state that they're in, you know, Idaho, whatever, votes for president for the Democratic candidate. And this state legislature says, wait a minute, we don't like that outcome. We are going to, by our action, say we're not going to seat these electors. We're not going to certify this election. We're going to throw them out and substitute ones of our choice. Well, that sounds outrageous, right? You'd never get away with that. And the reason you'd never get away with that is the courts would step in and say, you can't do this. This is a violation of the rights of the voters of this state, for example. But if you buy this idea that shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof, the argument goes, well, that's just the legislature. The legislature can do anything they want. 
there should be no court looking over their shoulder, not even the Supreme Court. And that sounds absurd because it is. <laughs> it tosses everything out. And I would say to my, to my Republican friends, and this is a Republican idea, a crazy conservative out there one, meaning most conservative you know, jurisprudence and most conservative lawyers and constitutional scholars say this idea is bizarre. But if you want to overturn an election, like in 2020 when Donald Trump and his cohort wanted to overturn an election, well, this would make it possible to do relatively simply. You wouldn't have any court at all. Right now, there are 60-something court cases and maybe more, 115-some-odd different allegations of problems. None of them are upheld by the courts, and we have the correct president was seated. But imagine if you had this provision. But if you think it's troublesome just for Democrats— Look at what just happened in New York. Not go back 20 years, not go back five years for look for some novel way that this might backfire on Republicans. This year in New York, why do the Republicans control the House of Representatives? It's because we in New York screwed up our redistricting. And what happened was that the state legislature drew these very much gerrymandered lines that gave Democrats overwhelming advantages and much we could pick up as many as four seats right here in New York. That was struck down by the courts in their interpretation of the Constitution. And the courts went in and drew lines with the help of what's called a special master that led to the Republicans not only winning all but one swing seat here in New York, but taking over the House of Representatives by a margin so slim that it was here in New York that led to that outcome. Well, imagine if the people who advocate for the so-called independent legislature theory, meaning that the legislature and the legislature alone gets to make this determination. Well, what would have happened? The Democratic State Senate, the Democratic State Assembly in New York, acting on their own without any court needing to come in, would have drawn those seats and would have then basically changed the entire flow of the way the national political spectrum lined up. This is a bad idea. The fact that it's elevated to the Supreme Court really makes you scratch your head. It's not by any stretch of the imagination a done deal how they would come down. You don't know. This is a Supreme Court that has expressed a willingness to throw out a lot of precedent, years of precedent to create enormous social unrest. They don't seem to care. And this would be throwing the very question of judicial review up in the air. And so what could Congress do? Congress could say any act by the state legislature has to go through the state court of that. They could do that. They could do that in this lame duck. That's one way this might get resolved. Or another thing that might happen is the Democrats might say, hmm, if we're taking parts of the law and taking away judicial review from, say, election law, why couldn't we take it away from laws dealing with guns? Why couldn't we take it away from laws dealing with abortion? And then any legislature that wants to take away someone's right, there's no judicial review. We've taken that away. Because remember, as I said earlier, judicial review, meaning the rights of courts to come and look over what legislatures do to decide whether they're constitutional, is nowhere in our founding document. It was put in there by Marbury v. Madison, a decision in the early 1800s, that has stood to this day, and thank goodness that it does. Because without the courts to interpret whether something is constitutional, who does? Who does? Individual legislatures? No, legislatures do the will of, of the majority. They don't try to protect the minority rights. 
They just do the will of the majority. That's the way our system is set up. It is the courts that protect the minority right. The courts that say that even if you're the only person who wants to demonstrate outside, you know, whatever, a radio station, you're protected and we're going to protect you, even if you're the only person saying something outrageous. So that's coming up on December 7th, the day that hopefully will not live in infamy for, infamy for another reason. And when we get back, we will dip into our listener mailbag for a truly bizarre letter. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. And so as you know, on a radio show, as I do every Saturday from 2 to 3 on 77 WABC Radio, you get callers. You get callers who call in and they express their views. They challenge you. Here in a podcast, I like to dip into the mailbag. I get it from a couple of different places, and you can participate in this part of the program. At Rep Wiener, R-E-P-W-E-I-N-E-R is my Twitter handle. Anthony D. Wiener is the Facebook page. And Wiener, W-A-B-C, at gmail.com is where you can just send me an old-fashioned email. I'm not 100% sure what the mailing address here. I think it's P.O. Box 1777, New York, New York, 10163. So today, Steve writes in, and he says, what are you going to do about the Kraft macaroni and cheese case? That was the letter. Now, I had to do some research to find out exactly what this is about. And sure enough, the burning issue of the day that got Steve fired up, it's a vexing one. Apparently, there is a lawsuit. A Florida woman sued Velveeta, claiming that the instant macaroni and cheese, specifically the shells made by Kraft Heinz, is engaged in misleading advertising based on the time it takes to prepare a single-serving cup of microwavable macaroni and cheese. And I'm sure many of you, my dear listeners, have encountered this problem and have said, someone ought to sue these bastards for this. Apparently, it says on the container, ready in three and a half minutes. And that's what Amanda Ramirez, who brought the suit, is concerned about. She points out in what appears to be a fairly open and shut case that the actual preparation process from stirring in the water to letting the cheese sauce thicken takes longer. That yes, you can microwave the water for three and a half minutes, but what about the rest of the process? It is not ready in three and a half minutes, Amanda Ramirez writes in a 15-page class action lawsuit. I haven't read all of it. I read the highlights. And let me quote from this lawsuit because I think it speaks for all of us. As a result of the false and misleading representations, the product is sold at a premium price approximately no less, I mean approximately no less, approximately no less than $10.99 for eight 2.39 ounce cups, excluding tax, excluding tax and sales, I don't even know what that means, higher than similar products represented in a non-misleading way and higher than it would be sold for absent the misleading representation and omission, the court filing reads. Well, 
you know, look, I got into government all those years ago when I ran for city council in 1991, was elected to Congress in 1998, to stop things like this from happening, to stop Velveeta shells and cheese from being marketed in such a deceptive way. And I say to you, Steve, if there has ever been a moment that I have been motivated to return to public life, it is hearing about this outrage. And I stand ready to do anything possible to help this lawsuit move along, which, by the way, covers consumers in Alabama, Georgia, North Carolina, South Carolina, Utah, New Mexico, Alaska, Iowa, Tennessee, and Virginia, who purchased the macaroni and cheese cups during the applicable statute of limitation period. I say I am ready to do anything that I can using the bully pulpit that I have here on the Middle Unplugged to get to the bottom of this and make sure those are brought to justice who have foisted on us this deceptively marketing pasta and cheese product. And I look forward to hearing from all of you. Look forward for having you tune in. If you like this podcast, feel free to comment where appropriate. You can share it. Obviously, subscribing is very helpful. And we also have a separate feed for The Middle, which is the show I do two to three every Saturday um, on 77 WABC. You can get that by listening live on the WABC app or wabcradio.com, or also you can get that as a podcast every Saturday as soon as we go off the air. I appreciate your being with me. Have a great week. And this is the end of The Middle. Unplugged.